Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, but we're not going to go there yet. We're going to pray and uh, welcome the radio audience that joins us for service. Father, we thank you now as we prepare to turn to the Word of God. We thank you for the Word. We thank you that you're a God that communicates with us. You talk to us. You're not silent in the heavens just waiting to see what we'll do. But this whole salvation, this walk with you is your idea. You've not left us alone, but you speak to us, and you speak to us primarily through your word, and you've given us your spirit. You've, not, you've left us with exactly what we need, your word and your spirit. And so, Father, now we turn to your word, and we rely upon the Holy Spirit to take this word, and as it's proclaimed and preached under the anointing of the spirit, that you would breathe it, breathe on it into our hearts, words of spirit and words of life that we would not leave here today with more information because most likely we will not hear things we have not heard before. But we will leave here filled with your spirit to go do what you've called us to do. Touch our hearts. Touch us deeply in our hearts. Move deeply within our hearts so that we can never be the same. And Father, as your word teaches, you've poured your spirit out on that day of Pentecost. And you continue to pour it out on those that would come and believe. And it changed them, and through them you changed the world. And Father, the world still needs to be changed. Your church needs to be strengthened and empowered. So fill us with your spirit by the word of God today. And for that, we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been looking at why we're here. It's an important thing to go and examine every once in a while. Why are we here personally, and why are we here as a church? And they're connected together. God put us on the earth for a purpose. I've shared with you before, the only trouble you can get in after you're saved is here. There's no, problem, there's no trouble in heaven. There's no temptation in heaven. There's no devil in heaven. There's no enemy in heaven. The only trouble we can get into is here. Then why, if God loves us so much... When we are brought into his kingdom, when we're saved, when we come to Christ, why doesn't he just take us out of here so we can't get in trouble? Well, the answer is clear. It's because he has something for us to do. And the something he has for us to do is because there are other people out there that can get in trouble that he wants to rescue and save and deliver. So he's put us here for a purpose. And there's no mystery about it. When you hear every once in a while about you know, somebody saying, you know, I'm really, I'm really trying to find out what, you know, what's my life all about. Well, I, you need to get saved or find out, read the Word of God, because the Word of God tells you what your life is all about and why we're here. And what we talked about is why that's so important, because so many people live their lives aimlessly. Now, I'm talking about Christians. We get up every morning and we may be faithful to read our Bible. We may be faithful to pray. We may be faithful to do the things that we're supposed to do. And then we go about our day, go to our work or whatever that responsibilities are of life, come back at the end of the day, we eat our meals and, you know, whatever you do, and then go to bed, get up the next morning and go through the same routine. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, until you come to the end and you look back and say, what did I do? What was my life all about? When you find out why you're here and then you begin to do that, that's the other thing that's so important. It changes you. It gives you purpose. It gives you focus. It gives you meaning to life. And so many Christians that are struggling with discouragement and depression and, and all the, so many of the emotional issues of life is because they either have not found their purpose or they're not doing their purpose because your true satisfaction and meaning comes from doing what you're here to do. Realize this. God made you. 
And he made you, and he knew exactly what he was doing when he made you, and he made you for a purpose, and we're only going to be happy. We're only going to be secure. We're only going to have all the things we want in terms of the emotions when we're doing what we're here to do. And many times the frustrations, the, 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 the irritability of things are because somewhere we're not, we know we're not doing what we're here to do. We may not know exactly what it is, but we don't have that sense of fulfillment. And it can only come by doing what God called you to do because he's the one that created you and made you. So to find out what that is, we discovered we can't go read philosophy books. We can't go study commentaries. They're helpful. But we can only go to the Word of God because that's the instructions that God gave to us so that we would know what we're here to do. And what we did is we went back and looked at what Jesus told his disciples at the end of his training. He called them and he brought them with him and he, they walked with him and he gave them assignments. And for about three and a half years, he trained them. And then he went to the cross and fulfilled his responsibility, fulfilled why he was here when he was raised from the dead. And then he appeared, he appeared to them. I'm getting an echo in here. Okay, And he appeared to them, and he gave them, in his last instructions to them, he gave them the commission, the instructions of what they were here to do. And there are several places where it appears, but the one we've looked at so far is in Mark's Gospel, the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, 16, where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go into all the world. And we've spent some time looking at the word go. It means it's an action word, verb. It doesn't mean learn, study, prepare. Those are all good things to do. But at some points, we have to go. It's a, it's, and there's a momentum to that. And we've looked at that word momentum. And momentum means the tendency of a body in motion to stay in motion. And the other side of that is the tendency of the body that's still to stay still, not doing anything. Sitting in that blue chair. I'm not looking at anybody. <laughs> and momentum, we find out when you begin to move, it creates energy. Not just, in, uh, not just retains energy. And that's, trip, that's true of the church also. So we're to go. And where do, what do you do? We're to go into. That means out among, mixed in, not separate from, but mixed into. And then we saw all the world. And the world is your world, my world. But when these worlds of ours individually are put together, we're going into all the world. And the world means the systems of this world, the philosophies of this world, the way, the attitudes of this world. It's not just physically out on a street corner, but it's to basically take the gospel and invade our world with it. Go into all the world that the preach. We'll look more at that as we go down the road. But that's more than standing behind a pulpit or standing out on a street corner with a megaphone. It's to declare is to, it to express, and we do that as much by the way we live our lives as the words we say. And what we've been looking at now is the gospel. What we're to preach, what we're to proclaim into all the world is the gospel. And we've taken the time now to set back, because what's in my heart and what I believe is in God's heart is, again, for, if you've been in the church for very long at all, you've heard this before. You've heard we're supposed to preach the gospel. And the question is, and this is what I'm finding God's been doing with me. So if he's going to do it with me, I'm going to do it with you. He's been asking me questions. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is good news. The word gospel comes from a Greek word, which literally means the good news. And the question I felt the Lord asked me is, well, if it's good news, why aren't you telling people? And what we've been looking at is when we taking this concept of gospel, of good news, 
and taking it outside the church, out that term outside the church, because somehow when we get in church, we do funny things with these words. We get theological and religious with it. But to take the term good news out of the church and bring it into regular everyday life, we all know what good news is. We mean the specifics for you may be different than the specifics for me, but we can tell when we've heard good news. And we can tell when we've heard bad news. All you've got to do is turn on your CNN and Fox News and everything else. It's just nothing but bad news. And we looked and saw that when people that met Jesus experienced good news, one thing they always had in common is they went and told people, even when he told them not to. So the question we begin to ask ourselves is, do we really know the good news? Have we really experienced the good news? Because in my life, and I'm sure in your life, when some good news comes across my life, I tell people about it. If I've been to a good restaurant, say, so, you know, it's a, I go, come, come in the office, you know, we went to this great Italian restaurant the other night. You really ought to go. Nobody told me I had to do that. The reaction, the response to having something good happen to me is I wanted to tell the people that I care about. And sometimes people I didn't care about. <clears throat> You want to communicate the good news. Well, if that's true about restaurants or movies, and of course only good ones, right? <clears throat> if it's true about experiences that you have or people that you've met, if we do that automatically with those kind of experiences, and this is good news, how come we don't automatically do it with this? How come we have to come up with <clears throat> programs and classes on evangelism <clears throat> so that we feel guilty? You know, if you go out and you preach the gospel out of guilt, that's what you're going to communicate. You're going to communicate fear and guilt. So we've been looking at, all right, maybe do we really know what the good news is? And have we really experienced it in our lives? And if we have experienced it, have we lost touch with it? Because remember, there's a life in this. It's the life of God when we're doing what we're supposed to do. There's a life that flows as you're sharing good news. The good news gets gooder, -er. it's not a good word, but the good news gets gooder -er to you, and it becomes, it becomes fresh, it becomes new. In fact, if you're feeling stale and your relationship with God is stale, just try sharing the good news and find out, see what happens. It enlivens you, it fills you up. Why? Because it's what you were made to do. It's what you were made to do on this earth. So last week we began to look at, all right, we look at this process of maybe, maybe I really don't, have not experienced the, the good news. And so we began to look at how do we get it? How do we receive that good news? Not as a concept in our head, but something that moves my heart. See, it's not a concept in my head. It's like, wow, and I saw at a great restaurant the other night. Bruce, it was a great Italian restaurant Anita and I went to. I don't have to get a principal to tell me to do that. That's not out of my head. It's an emotion. And we don't, we're not led by emotions. But boy, when we communicate passion and caring, that's contagious. That's contagious. You stand on a street corner and just start saying anything with passion. People will gather around you even though you're speaking gibberish because they want to know they're drawn in by passion. And passion means caring about it. And so we began to look at the process last week and saw that, that in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it says that the Satan is the god of this world and he blinds the eyes of the unbelieving so that we cannot see the glorious hope of the gospel that's in Christ Jesus. 
So he blinds the eyes of people that aren't saved so that they can't see the good news. And what we began to learn is that doesn't stop once you're saved because there's depths of this good news. We looked at the unsearchable riches of Christ. And if, my goodness, if we were in here this morning and we had a taste of the unsearchable riches of Christ, we'd still be so far in praise and worship I'd never get up here. Why can we sing 20 minutes worth of four, four songs for 20 minutes and just sit down and be cool, calm, and collected when we've been communing with the God of eternity? Why? Because somehow it's not real to us. Or it was real and we've forgotten. So this process that Second Corinthians Paul says about, talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's the Satan doesn't just stop once you're saved, but he's trying to shield your heart so it's not touched or moved by the reality of God. In which case we become religious. We do the things we're supposed to do, not out of relationship with Christ, not out of relationship with our Heavenly Father, but we do them because it's the right thing to do or we're supposed to do it or we feel better because we're doing it. And that's religion. And when that's what we're trying to communicate, it's dead. There's no life in that. And God is alive. God is exciting. God is good. God is a deliverer. He's compassionate. He wants to invade people's lives and turn them around and change them powerfully and mightily. But maybe we haven't experienced that in our own life or it's been so long we've lost touch with it. So that's what we're looking at. And we looked at last week again the blocks, the the obstacles. And we saw that it was religion, traditions, what we've always done it this way. I come to church, I get in my routine, and I do what I've always done, and that keeps me from experiencing the reality of it. This is what happens in marriages. They go through the same routines. I mean, to the point that they don't even need to say things at each other. They can just look at each other and communicate. And we get into a rut, and what happens is we begin to take each other for granted, and we're living together, we're, you know... We're married, but we're not. I'm not talking about us. But, 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 we're, we're, but what happens is, you just got to make that clear. But what happens is, is we just live our lives together. And that's what marriage is. And so we have to work at it. We have to work. We had to go out like yesterday at breakfast. And she said, these are things I really think I need to share with you. And it's like, okay. <laughs> she said, let's go to breakfast. And I said, Okay. But getting out of our routine, getting out of the house, sitting down somewhere, whatever that is, gives her, her a chance to share some things with me and gives me the opportunity to give her my undivided attention. And some of the things she wanted to share with me were difficult to share, but in the process of doing it, we grew closer. And so we have to work at that, work at that communication and not just do the things we've always done because then what we'll do is it just becomes a dead routine. But we do that with God. We do that with God. So prayer becomes a burden and responsibility, this thing that we have to do. My goodness, talking to the living God who will talk back to us, who knows everything? Wow, that's the privilege we get. But when we're not experiencing that, it becomes religious and hard and work. And the second thing we saw was that Satan blinds our eyes through unbelief. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin to look at that good news, look at what it is, and look at because it's, it's not just a concept that I believe God wants us to have. But to open the door of our heart and realize somehow something's missing here. So we're going to talk a little bit about what news is. We mentioned it last week. News is something you haven't heard before. It does, it's not that it doesn't exist. You just haven't heard it before. So now, if you, know, you turn on television, the network news, they'll give it to you over and over and over and over again. And just a word of caution, I only listen to it once. And I don't listen to it that long. Because if you listen to it over and over 
over and over again. There is not, we've got, we've got umpteen 24-hour news channels, and there's not 24 hours worth of news. So they got to tell it to you over and over again, not just telling it to you. Then they got a commentary tell you what it means, and they got a banner running across the bottom telling you what the commentator just said. So it's just coming at us all over the place from television. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing, but fear comes by hearing also. So news is something, this information that you didn't know before, although it may have already existed, and now it's been revealed to you or shown to you or told to you. And good is something that the meaning of it depends on what you're comparing it to. I'll explain to you what that means. If you, find, if you take a flashlight and you go outside at noon on a break like the day to day, and you shine that flashlight around outside, it's light. But it won't mean much to people because compared to the light that's around it, it's nothing. But you have a blackout, you lose your power in the middle of the night, and, the, and it's in, in wintertime and it's cold, your furnace has gone out, and you reach over and you find that flashlight and turn it on, it has much greater meaning and value to you because you found that light in the darkness. So the, the meaning and the significance of that light depends on the context, depends on the setting and what you're using it for. And the same is true of the word good. Good's a comparative term because good only means something when you know what you're comparing it to. Jesus is a great example of that. There was a man that came to him one day and said to him, good master, and they went into something else and Jesus stopped him. And he says, no, no, you don't understand something. There's only one good, and that's my Father in heaven. Now, by anybody else's standards, Jesus was good. But in Jesus' mind, he recognized my goodness comes from him. And Hebrews chapter 11, chapter 1, verse 3, says he is the outshining, literally in the Greek, it says he is the outshining of the Father's glory. It's in him, but it shines out through him. Amen. Paul on the road to Damascus at the height of day when the sun was at his brightest, Jesus appears in his glory. I don't know if his form was there, and it knocks Paul off his horse and everybody off their horse. The power of that light knocked him off his horse and blinded him for three days. Because the glory of Christ was so far beyond the glory of the sun and that it overshadowed it. So what does the word good mean to you? The only depth of the meaning, the only emotion of that meaning depends on what you're comparing it to. So good news only means something when it's compared with bad news or the situation that you're in. For instance, you've had a condition in your body and, and you've been to the doctor and he said, I, you know, I, I don't know what this is. We're going to have to run a bunch of tests. And they run a bunch of tests and they come back and tell you, we don't find anything. And yet it's getting worse and worse and worse and you're getting very concerned and maybe even afraid of what this is going to mean. 
and they refer you to doctor after doctor, and you're getting more and more discouraged, and it's more and more bad news. It's like either we don't know what it is, or we think it might be this, we think it might be that, we think it might be this, we think that. And then one day you walk into the office of a specialist, and he looks at your chart, he looks at you, does a few things. He says, I know exactly what this is. I treat this all the time. And here's what it's going to do. I'm going to give you a prescription. And you take this for five days, and this is going to clear up. That's good news. And what it made it even better is because everything else they told you was bad. Suddenly there was an answer. There was a deliverance. Suddenly there was something. So the worse the situation you're in that you realize you're in, the better the good news is when you can come out. Peter writes over in 2 Peter, his letter. He says, here's the things you need to grow in. He says, you need to add to your virtue, add to your faith virtue, and add to your virtue knowledge, knowledge of God, and add to your knowledge godliness, and add to your godliness self-control, and add to your self-control perseverance, and add to your perseverance brotherly love, and add to your brotherly love godly level of love. And as long as you do these things and develop these things, your, your entrance into the kingdom of God will be abundantly open to you. And when he says you don't do these things, it's because you've forgotten what you were saved from. You've forgotten the sins that you were delivered out of. Many of us that have been walking with the Lord for a while, forgotten what we were like before. Forgotten what it's like to have no hope. Forgotten what it's like to have no peace in your heart or peace in your life. Forgotten those things. And most of us have no concept of what God has actually saved us from and how much he's loved us. Now, did I tell you to turn to Luke chapter 6, 7? Okay. Let's take a look down here because there's a wonderful example of this story. It's really knowing what we were saved from that we can truly appreciate the good news of what God's done for us and how much he's loved us. Verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, the woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus was at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Now that's very valuable. The flask is valuable and the oil is very valuable. And stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, they spoke to, he spoke to to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Now there's three groups of people in this story. There's Jesus, obviously. There's the woman. And then there's the Pharisees and all of his friends. And each of them, well, the Pharisees and the woman have a very different reaction and response to Jesus' presence. He's the same Lord. He's the same Son of God. 
He's the same Savior of the world. He's the same Lamb of God. But their response to him is very different. Not so much based on who they see he is, but on who they, how, how they see themselves. And this is the point of this story. So as we go through this story, we're going to look at her response to him and their response to him. And he's the same. He's the same Savior. He's the same Son of God. He's the same Redeemer. He's the same Healer. He's the same Lamb of God slain for all of their sins. But their response to him is very different. Okay, that's the cast of characters in this story. So what she does is she begins to break open this vial of alabaster, very valuable jar, and pour out this very priceless ointment. I've read some commentaries that say it may have been worth an entire year's salary. We don't know how she got it. But she's taking something very precious and very valuable to him, and she's pouring it over his feet, and she's weeping. She's crying. And with her tears, she's wiping his feet and drying them with her hair. Okay. So what this Pharisee is talking within himself, that if this man were really a prophet and would know who and what manner of woman this is that's touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus knew his thoughts and answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Well, teacher, say it. And I'm sure, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that Simon was thinking, wow, he's going to honor me because I have this insight of what worship really is. I have this concept of what God really is like. And I have brought you into my house to feed you and give you honor as a teacher. And I'm sure God is pleased with what I'm doing here today because I'm doing something respectful for this teacher that God has brought to this land. And then this woman sneaks in. Doesn't sneak, I don't know whether she's, how she got in there. But she's doing this thing that's not religious at all. She's doing this thing that doesn't look like it's... It's not in line with the traditions and principles. In fact, she shouldn't even have been there. So she comes in there at great risk. Physical risk to herself. Financial risk because she's spilling this beautiful, expensive ointment out on him. And at risk to her reputation because she's crying, she's emotional, she's lost control of herself. She's not being dignified and respectful. And the Pharisee, the religious leader who was trained to know God and to worship God and to serve God, is recognizing this is an offense to God. This is not right. She shouldn't even be here. And she's not being respectful and she's not showing proper decorum for this teacher and in my house. And I recognize that. And Jesus, reading his thoughts, turns to him and says, Simon, I want to say something to you. And he says, teacher, say it. As we go through the story, you know, it's, it's not just an historical story. We can draw things about ourselves about this. How do we come to church? What are the attitudes that we have when we come? Does everything have to be exactly where it's supposed to be? Well, we're in this construction period. It's not going to be. And I get frustrated with that sometimes. I come in today and, you know, I like things neat and clean. Well, there are petals from the flowers that fell last night on the floor. And you know what? That doesn't affect God. I want things decent and in order, but I can't get so distracted by that that I can't worship God. We can get so focused 
on having things right, having things what we think is orderly, and God is a God of order. But it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. We can go out and hand out Bibles and tracts and get evangelism programs, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if we're doing it because it's a good religious thing to do, then what are we communicating? It's an issue of the heart. Teacher, tell me, say it to me. Verse 41. So, as again, we talked about Jesus starts telling a story. There's a certain creditor who had loaned some money. And he had two debtors, two people that owed him. One owed him 500 denarii and the other only 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And now he brings the point of the story home. And he said to him, You judge rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house and you gave no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, which was a common a sign of, 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 um, of hospitality and of respect. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with a fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. And this is the principle. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who sat with the table began to say to themselves, who is this that even forgives sin? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now let me ask you a question. Was it because this woman was a greater sinner than the Pharisees? That she knew that she was a greater sinner than the Pharisees? That she came and she didn't care about decorum? <clears throat> she didn't care about procedure? She didn't care about all the niceties? All she knew is... The, God, God, the Son of God was there, a God of mercy, and she came to ask for forgiveness, very conscious of who she was and what she'd done. And Jesus forgives her, and as a result, she loves him much. The Pharisees didn't think they needed to be forgiven of anything because they thought they were so right because they did everything right according to their rules. Not necessarily God's rules, their rules. They lived by the rules to the point in other places Jesus says, you tithe mint and cumin. It's over, I think, in 25 or 24, Matthew. You tithe mint and cumin. You tithe down to the, to the if somebody gives you, you know, uh, for Mother's Day, our, our, our oldest son and his white daughter gave us a, a lilac plant. So what we would have done is take a tenth of the buds off of that and put them in an offering envelope. That's what they were doing. Every little thing that came in, they were being very legalistic with it. And because they were being legalistic and very faithful in that, they thought that made that right in God's sight. So the Son of God comes into their, into their home, the, God who's, the Son of God who's come to forgive sins and pay for their sins, and they don't need Him. So they don't receive Him as their Savior, because they don't need a Savior. This woman loves Him with all of her heart to the point that she'll pay the most valuable thing she has apparently, she'll also give up all her prestige and all, and she just, all she does is she wants to pour her love out on him because he loves her back. He's forgiven her. 
And Jesus wants to use this as a principle to show them that the way I can tell how you've received me and what I mean to you is by the way you love me. We don't love him so that he'll love us. But the freedom of our love for him, the passion of our love for him, is a direct natural response to seeing what he's done for us. And so when we don't think much about him, when we don't have a passion to, do, to talk about him, when we don't have a passion to tell what God's, he's done in our lives, it's because we've either never known really what he's done for us or we've known it in the past but kind of lost touch with it and because we've been married to him for 20, 30, 40 years, we've just kind of taken for granted because we've forgotten what it was like when we were first saved. When I first saved, my goodness, I'll never forget that. That night, I was jumping all around my house, still in my three-piece suit. All my decorum as a State Street lawyer was going out the window. I didn't care. I just knew something wonderful had happened to me. I didn't understand it. I knew when I had cried out to Christ, something came inside of me, and I was filled with a joy I'd never experienced before. I couldn't sleep. When I finally got up the next morning, I remember going down, getting off the MTA, and everybody I saw looked beautiful to me. I remember going in to get my cup of coffee and my donut, and Cy was the guy's name, big, heavy guy. You know, he, was the, he did, handed out the coffee and the donuts at the copper, uh, the copper kettle, whatever it was called in Boston, and it was back in those days, you know, and he was always sweaty and, you know, not that big guy. And I, I, if I got to come across the counter, I'd have kissed him. I walked into that law firm, and my partners looked, I loved them. I loved everybody. I was in love. I, and I was 35, 36 years old, and I felt like a teenager that had fallen in love. Wow. And a month or so later, I shared this with a while ago, we went on vacation with family, Anita's family, and I, I almost destroyed them. <laughs> I tried to get them saved on the spot every day. And then I got mad because they wouldn't accept him. I mean, I was dangerous. But I wasn't shy. Because something had happened to me good. I didn't understand it. I didn't have any theology down. I didn't really know that the Holy Spirit had come into the I didn't know what there was a Holy Spirit at that point. I just know I couldn't keep quiet. And that's where some of you, or some of you may have never experienced that before. But if we're not walking in that every day, not necessarily being, feeling, you know, like a teenager, but that love, that passion, then somewhere we've lost touch with the good news. Maybe we've lost touch with what we were saved from. Maybe we never really understood what we were saved from. We were saved not just from something, but to something. Because God's not a God of the negative. He doesn't just take the good, evil out of your life, but he, bring, he does it to bring something good in. So the good news, what does it mean to you today? What does the gospel, the good news, mean to you today? Does it still touch your heart? Wow, God, thank you for what you did for me. Or are we becoming like the Pharisee and begin to think that maybe we're entitled to some things because we've been walking with God so long? You know, the problem Jonah had is he, he thought he had earned his position with God. One of the reasons the story's in there. You know the story of Jonah? Kid, you know, popular 
children's story in Jonah and the whale. It doesn't say it was a whale, it was a fish. God tells Jonah, who's a prophet, to go to Nineveh and to preach a one-sentence sermon, which is basically get your affairs in order because in 40 days, your history, the whole place. And it was the most evil city on the face of the earth at the time, and it would be in the top 10 of all time evil cities. I don't want to describe to you the things they did to their children there. They invented the crucifixion process. And so when Jonah is sent there, you'd think Jonah would be filled with zeal. I don't get to go and tell them they're toast. You got 40 days to get their affairs in order because then God's going to come down and he's going to toast you. He's going to turn you into a pile, a, a, a puddle of oil and grease. Wow. But what does Jonah do? He gets on a boat to go to the opposite direction. And you know the story. A storm comes up and Jonah says, I'm the reason because I'm a disobedient prophet. And they throw him over the side. God causes a fish to swallow him up. That fish was, that fish was a repentance hotel. Because what that fish did is it kept him from other things in the sea that wanted to eat him that night. And so while he's down in there, if you read, he talks, he, he, he's talking to God in there. So it's, there's room in there for him to exist. But there are other things most likely floating around in there. So although it's a hotel to keep him safe, it's not one he wants to stay in for long. And God will do that sometimes to get your attention. He'll have something swallow you a circumstance swallow you that may look like it's the worst thing in the world, but it may be protecting you from yourself. But God designs it in such a way that you don't want to stay there. And so as soon as he repented, the fish comes right up on the shore and ex in church, I'll use this word, expels him out. And you know the direction he expelled him in was the direction of Nineveh. Comes right out on the shore. And it's not in the Bible, but I've read some stories and commentaries that most likely having lived that long in the belly of the fish, his clothes were bleached out, his face was... And so he came out and walked into that city. He looked like something that came out of the sea, literally. And he goes in there, and we find out why he was hesitant to do this. Because he goes through and he preaches, he does what God tells him to do, but I, I imagine he doesn't do it with the right attitude. He does it because he has to. And what happens is he goes through the city, does what he's supposed to do, preaches what he's supposed to do, and then just goes outside the city and sits down. Well, the king of Nineveh hears this message. And there was nothing in the sermon, there was nothing in that sentence that said, if you repent, God will forgive you. But the king says, perhaps, he calls a day of fasting. He says, perhaps, if we cry out to God, this God who's condemned us for mercy, perhaps he might relent and forgive us. So there's a day of prayer. And fasting called. Not just a holiday that the government recognizes and is on TV, but there's real fasting, real sackcloth, real repentance. And God hears from heaven and forgives them. Now Jonah's sitting on the outside of the city and he signs out that God's forgiven them and he gets mad. This is why Jonah didn't want to come and preach to them because his fear was if they cried out for mercy, he knew his God was merciful and he was afraid God would forgive them because they deserved the punishment that God was about to bring to them. And Jonah goes out and sits outside the city and pouts because God's been merciful to these people that don't deserve it. 
See, what Jonah forgot is the very nature of mercy is you don't get what you deserve. The very nature of mercy is you don't get what you deserve. But when religion begins to creep into our thinking, and when we've walked with God for a while, we begin to do what the Pharisees do. We begin to add in our own sense of right and wrong, even though it's based on scriptures. But don't understand everything God does is out of mercy and out of love. Jonah sits out there and begins to pout. He's mad. And so God causes a a little tree to grow up and provides shade for him. And Jonah likes the shade. He loves that tree because it's become part of his life and it's his protection. And then God causes a canker worm to come out and eat the tree and it dries up. And now he gets angry and God speaks to him. And he says, you care more about that little tree than you do about 600,000 men and their families and the cattle in there. And he says, you've forgotten basically from where you were saved. The church today, by and large, is a lousy witness to the world, at least in the United States. We're perceived as being political, and there's nothing wrong with politics, there's nothing wrong with standing up for what's right and true. But have we done it in mercy and love? The question that started me in this whole direction came really in the middle of a sermon. I was reading a story out of the Bible to us, and it really went off in me. A story which says, the sinners and the tax collectors came to sit at Jesus' feet and hear what he had to say. This is the righteous son of God. So it wasn't the fact that he was so holy and righteous. You know, it's not, let's go back a second. And the question then is, why don't they come and sit at our feet to hear what we have to say? Here he is, the holy son of God. So it wasn't, his holiness didn't keep them from him. The fact that he was holy and they were sinners didn't keep them from him. There was some message that he had in his heart. There was something about him that gave them some sign that if they could come to him, he had some good news for them. They knew they were sinners. They knew they were wrong. What they didn't know is, was there a way out? And we're the way out. We have the truth, the message, the way out for our families, for our neighbors, for our co-workers. What happens is when we lose this heart, then we do the right things for the wrong reason and communicate the wrong message. Paul had to write to the church at Corinth because they were doing the same thing. They were having the gifts of the Spirit flow. I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was the charismatic renewal, I mean, to the nth in this church in Corinth. The gifts of the Spirit were flowing powerfully and fluently and effectively. The problem was they were full of strife and envy and jealousy. Paul says in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 3, he says, you're carnal, which means you're still like the world. The world can't tell any difference between you and it 
And yet the gifts were flowing powerfully. And Paul has to write to them in verse chapter 12 to explain to them what the gifts are here for and what they are. And chapter 13, he gets to the little, literally the heart of it. Because if you're speaking in church in tongues of angels and of men, but you're not motivated by the love of God, in God's ears, it's a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If you have faith to move mountains, I mean, imagine that. If this church were known for its mountain-moving faith, wow, faith, Christian center, whatever we pray and speak gets done instantly. Wow. Gifts of the Spirit flowing fluently. People knock on the door to come in because they know miracles happen here. And the gifts of the Spirit, whatever they are, they don't understand it, but there are funny things happen there, but wow, it's interesting. But if it's not motivated by love for God and His love for them, in God's eyes, it counts as nothing. Not even good try. Nothing. Is it possible that the sinners and the tax collectors, the outcasts, came to sit at this feet of this holy, righteous Son of God because they felt that in Him was hope. In Him was a way out. In Him was good news. The story that Jesus tells here is of a loan shark or a bank or creditor who loaned money out, and these two men borrowed money, one $500 and the other, let's say it's $500,000 and the other $5,000. And, and they were both bankrupt. Neither had the ability to pay it. The principle is the one who knew how much he was forgiven loved much. And here the woman with her great sin knows what a sinner she is. She knows what she deserves, and she readily recognizes it and regrets it, but she also recognizes in him as a savior from her sins. The Pharisees were just as great a sinner, if not more. Just as great a sinner. They needed his, him to die for them just as much as she needed to die for them. But they couldn't see what they needed because of their pride. They couldn't see what they needed because their trust was in their religious practices and traditions and the fact of what they knew over everybody else. And because of that pride, because of that tradition that blocked their heart, that clogged their heart, they couldn't see how desperately they were just as much a sinner as this woman, if not more, because they were steep with pride, which is the greatest of sin, the most dangerous of sins. Spiritual pride is the most dangerous of pride. And they couldn't see how much they needed him. So here you have in one room the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world, not just the prostitutes, not just the downcast, but the sin of the world, of the religious leadership, of the pride, of the pride and all of the sins that those in authority can have. He came to forgive those also, to take those away. And the woman who recognized 
how desperately she needed a savior, cried out for his salvation, and the result is she loved him much because she knew how much she needed him. The Pharisees, on the other hand, who needed him as much, if not more, couldn't recognize who he was. They couldn't love him because they didn't realize how much they needed him. And the question is, where are we today? Where are we, either in one of those extremes or the other, or somewhere in between? And notice that the evidence of my, uh, how aware I am of my need for him is the love that I have back for him. God doesn't command us to love us because he commands us. Here in his love, First John says, not that we loved him first, but that he loved us first. The response of our love to him is a direct proportion to our awareness and knowledge of how much he loved us. And the proof of how much he loved us is how far he down he came to save each and every one of us. Some of us, when he found us, were weary down and out. Some of you may have been literally in the gutter. Some of you may have been like outcasts of the world. But don't forget, he also comes to save the up and inners. And that's what I was. I was in a large law firm. I was very prosperous. I didn't know I needed a savior. I've been raised in church. I was a deacon in my church, highly respected. Nice family. Everything seemingly going well. Those are sometimes the hardest to reach because they think they have everything together. Why do I need a savior? By the world's standards, I'm doing very well. But the Spirit of God began to work in me, began to press in on me. I'd hear this, I'd get a teaching here, I'd, from friends I began to meet, and we became part of a group, and uh, I began to meet friends that, that, would, that, would, that would answer the questions that I had. One of my issues was I thought that Christianity was for women and weak-minded men. That's just the way I was kind of raised. And then God began to bring across my path senior executives at American Optical. I read a book by Chuck Colson, who had been, became the uh, President Nixon's uh, chief counsel in the Watergate, from Water, before Watergate, or during Watergate. But he, before that, was the managing partner of the second largest law firm in Boston across the street from me. And the guy that led him to the Lord was the president and CEO of Raytheon Corporation. These things didn't fit my image. And then I ran across books by people like C.S. Lewis, people that were highly educated. That was God getting through to me. And then one night, I'll never forget it, I had a ter terrible snowstorm and everything was quiet. We lived in one of the prosperous communities outside of Boston. And my, I just had a fight with my wife. And I stormed out of the house. And I'm walking down the streets in this town, bitterly cold, but I'm all steamed up. And after about 10, 15 minutes, when the, I start steaming down and the cold begins to come in on me and the darkness begins to come in on me and the quiet begins to come in on me and I suddenly became aware as I calmed down of where I was 
and how cold it was and how quiet it was and how empty it was where I was. And then what hit me like nothing ever hit me before, I realized on the inside I was colder, I was emptier, and I was darker. It shook me to the core. And that was the Spirit of God working in me to let me know where I really was inside. Outwardly, I had everything you could use and need. Outwardly, all the appearance of a nice family. But I was bankrupt inside with all of, those, all of that wealth, all of that position, all of that education. I was bankrupt on the inside. And that's when I realized I was in trouble. And weeks later, I'm reading my Bible because it didn't make much sense to me, but I'm, trying, I'm searching now. And I came across in the Sermon of the Mount where Jesus says, be holy as my Father is holy. And literally I realized, if that's God's standard, I'm in trouble. Because I thought I was pretty holy, but not when it came compared to God. And literally these words came out of my mouth. Well, if that's true, I need somebody to save me. And when I heard my own words... I realized that I needed Christ in my life. That's the journey God took me on. He had to make me aware, penetrate through my up and inness, penetrate through the wealth that we had, penetrate through the position that I had in the education. He had to penetrate through all those barriers to get into my heart and open my heart up to realize how lost I was. So that when I found out how lost I was, I would cry out for help. And the good news that he brought to me changed me forever. But 30-some years later, you lose touch with some of that. And even as I'm sharing it with you, some of that's coming back alive in me. We need to remember where we came from. We need to remember what we've been saved out of. Not just with our head, but with our heart. We need to remember where we were headed until Christ got a hold of us. Some of you were very young when you were saved. And it's hard to remember. Rejoice in that. But look at what God's done in your life and with your life. The good news. How good is it to you today? It's only good by comparing it to what you were in and where you were headed and what things used to be like. We're going to go back on that journey together. There's another aspect of this we'll look at next time. Because we're going to look over in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the question to ask ourselves then is, is it very powerful in my life today? Because salvation there means deliverance, healing. It means everything. Does the gospel have that power in my life? Because I guarantee you if it does, you're going to be telling people about it. The word literally means dynamite. Do you realize you have dynamite in this book? Handle with care. It could go off at any moment and change somebody's life. Praise God. Well, let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of this in time this morning, and there's more to share, but we're talking about things this morning and scriptures and principles, Lord, that are far more than that. They are to touch our hearts at the very depths of us. We pray this morning, Father, that what's been sown into our heart by your Spirit would never leave us alone. But as you continue to work in me, that this word would continue to work in each one of us. That your precious Holy Spirit would continue to ask us questions. Not to condemn us, but so that we would be willing to let him examine our hearts. 
to see where we are so that you could make, help us make the adjustments to get our hearts to where they needed to be so that you could work in our lives, for our lives, and through our lives, your will and your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for the mercy that you've had upon us. Thank you for the grace that you've lavished upon us. But open our eyes to see where we were and where we were headed before that mercy and grace was lavished upon us. And for this we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.